And we're back with another episode of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in. Now, this podcast is kind of a weird one. Let me give a quick backstory here. Um, I am on the board of advisors for the George H.W. Bush China, uh, Foundation for U.S.-China Relations. I know what you're, you're thinking. You're thinking, Ryan, how did they get you on? They've got me mistaken with another Ryan Ray, okay? <laughs> but our last call, we have a quarterly call, I think it is, or two calls ago, maybe. Uh, a gentleman reached out. And I uh, said, hey, you know, I was talking on the call. Let's let's chat on LinkedIn. I said, okay, that name sounds familiar. And I went and looked, and sure enough, I'd seen he had a book on Amazon that I had purchased like two years ago on international business, but I never read the book, which made it kind of awkward. So <laughs> there was a, a step in the right direction that I had bought the book, but I hadn't read the book. So then you had the pressure to read the book. But anyways, uh, so that's, that's led up to this conversation today uh, with a real China expert who is Tyler Johnson. Tyler, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing today? Hey, Ryan, I'm doing wonderful, man. Thanks for having me here. And I, I don't know if I'm an expert at anything, really. You know, uh, the, the longer I live and, and the, the more hours I'm, I'm awake here, it seems that I'm not an expert at much. <laughs> well, tell everybody really quick about the book, the inspiration for the book, um, and kind of why I'm, you were in China and Asia to write the yeah, book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, let, let me just get, I'll, I'll give some background. And again, yeah. thanks for having me on this, you know, and I, I really do appreciate it. Um, and, um, you know, I'll give you, give you some background. So I spent uh, 20, 21 years at, at Dell and, and 10 of those years I lived in China. So I lived in Shanghai uh, from 2005 to 2015. Um, I've always been in the in the tech sector, uh, hardware, software, you name it, and uh, you know uh, had the chance in 2005 to to go live in China and, and work in China for for Dell, and uh, it was a unique opportunity uh, to take the family over there. Uh, it was supposed to be two years and ended up being ten years. So um, uh, you know it was a, a unique experience, and and I tried to put forth my uh, my experience and some of the lessons that I learned in a, in a book that I wrote, uh, which was published in 2019 called The Way of the Laoai. And the way of the Laoai, Laoai means foreigner in, in Chinese. And so it's, it's about eight lessons that I learned at uh, really interacting and doing business with different cultures. Um, and, and that was the key point. So I've got, I've got three kids and one of them was born in, in Shanghai, which is kind of cool. And then my my two daughters uh, both speak and write uh, Mandarin, um, so they grew up in elementary school um, doing dictation and and doing all that cool stuff and in the schools there to uh, to actually uh, write and read it. So blonde hair, blue eyes, and you know they're rattling off uh, you know a, a cool language. <laughs> it's funny you say that. I'll I'll say the person's name off air uh, with someone we both know, um, and. I was having lunch with them the other day. I know they speak Mandarin, but and we're at a Chinese restaurant, uh, kind of an authentic Chinese restaurant, and there's something going on, and he starts speaking Mandarin. And it, it is it is felt weird because you know it's it's not something that you see every day. You see some people, especially in Texas, kind of mumble through a little bit of Spanish or something like that, and uh, but you don't see many Americans that can speak much Mandarin, much less borderline fluent Mandarin. So when you see it, it's, it's kind of one of those. It's like when the John Cena video came out the other day. You're like, wait, is this being dubbed over his real voice? Like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's weird. It's Mandarin. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the hardest languages, if not the hardest language to learn. And so, um, you know, learning a language, they say, uh, is much easier as a kid. Um, and right. before you're 
uh, what five or six years old, if, if you can pick up a language uh, during those early years, it's much easier for you. So anyway, my, 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 my kids have the, um, the benefit of knowing that going forward. And it was funny because we were walking on the beach. We were on vacation in, in, in Hawaii and we were, I was walking on the beach with my eldest daughter and there were some Chinese that were there and they were speaking Chinese and we walked past and she goes, dad, I can just pick up everything that they just said. It's pretty unique uh, thing. And, you know, it's just something that is ingrained in your head as you go. And, and anyway, that's the premise of, and a cultural transformation and integration and that kind of stuff. So that's what I tried to write about in the book. And you talk about um, this story where the executives come over <laughs> and there's a talk about a toll booth and how they perceive that, but there's other things that the executives kind of were dealing with. And what struck me was when I first went to South Africa, which is about, I've been internationally, but not for business. South Africa, mm -hmm. my first international kind of business trip. Um, I remember going down there with these preconceived notions of what I thought might be down there. Most sure. of that being blown away yeah. and then being confused by all the stuff that I didn't understand that they, that they had. And then going, well, if you have this, why don't you have this? Like that doesn't make sense. And yeah. it just, I was closer to the Dell executive than I was you my first yeah. time in South Africa. And I was, I wasn't trying to go with ill intent. It's just, you get down there and you're like, okay, listen, okay. It's an emerging market. And you get down there and you get on this, this interstate and you're like, wow, Look at these loads. These are <laughs> impressive. And then yeah. you go 10 miles and you're like, wait, how do you have that? But you can't get it. And it's really, if you're trying to observe other cultures outside the U.S., it really kind of, uh, I, don't, I don't mess with your head, but it's hard for us to figure out because especially in an emerging market um, in China, uh, they're, they're not fully, if you go outside the big cities, right, they have a lot, a lot of emerging markets that are still happening. Um, but you go international. Uh, into emerging markets, it's really tough for the American to kind of understand what's going on and why certain pro progress has been made. I thought your book did a good job of uh, capturing that. Yeah, it's a it's a great point, and and I think um, you know I would highly recommend for anybody if they get an opportunity to live overseas and integrate into a different culture, it'll certainly change your perspective and change the the way you see the world. Um, which which I think is very fortunate. Um, and I'll go back to my kids, right? You know, my kids have a view of the world, which is much, much different than others that haven't lived abroad. Um, they're more accepting. Um, they uh, are more aware of what goes on. They don't um, uh, question things as much, right, uh, about different cultures. Uh, they're just, they're, they're more aware. But, but I'll go back to your point, right? It's, you, you don't know until you're integrated into it. And uh, being away from the country for so long, um, I, you 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 forget uh, what happens in the United States. And I had a tough time coming back to the United States and integrating into the society back in the United States because a lot of the functionality and the ease of use and you know just options and all of this ease of comfort. Um, didn't exist in some of the places that I lived. And so I had a tough time understanding why you needed a hundred different brands of peanut butter when uh, in some countries you either can't get peanut butter or you only get one brand. And if it's on the shelf, you grab it. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I'm glad you brought that up because that, that, that struck me is that I, I, I read that and I thought, okay, that's interesting because here on some level, a function of capitalism is that you have a hundred brands of peanut butter, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so 
but there's also the question is, do you need a hundred brands of peanut butter? And so it was, I, I read that in the book and you, you, I think it was peanut butter and cereals with the two things you brought yeah. up. It's like, okay, that's an interesting point because capitalism produces all this stuff. But then if you're coming from the outside perspective to capitalism, you're like, well, why do you need all this? You're like, well, cause capitalism. And yeah. it was just kind of an interesting dynamic kind of reading the book and, and thinking about that because um, we kind of take it for granted, but, once you're on the other side of the coin, you're probably going, yeah, why, why do you need so much? It's like, well, that's just what capitalism produces sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And it leads you to the next point, which is which is um, as we create and, and we have entrepreneurs and new companies and innovation and stuff like that, are we creating things that are actually relevant, that are solving yeah. problems? Right. Or are, we just, or are we just creating things that, you know, are a waste of money for right. people? And so – you get to a point now where you really want to see, oh, God, does this really have functional use? If you go to the DMV in the United States, right, it's a mess, right? right. It takes forever, right? You don't need all those steps. You can automate that. But nobody's focused on that. They're focused on the color of emojis and what type <laughs> of emojis are out there, right? <laughs> right. Well, and, and that's the thing is that you have the market creates um, things and some things turn out to be very beneficial, some don't. It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of hard to evaluate um, you know, in the moment, what actually will lead to the next step and what is this going to be discarded? Um, the other thing you talk about stories, I, I've got, um, uh, two stories that, that I'll share with you. And I don't think I've ever shared publicly, but I've told people, um, kind of my favorite stories, uh, internationally. And I have not spent nearly as much time overseas as you have. I've gone, I go for trips, not, not lengthy stays like you do. Um, I was, they both come from Zambia and you talk about shaping your perspective and how you view the world. I love to fish. And so um, when I was in Zambia, I want to go fishing. Um, and so I got to go. I actually got to go on my, on my birthday. It's pretty cool. Um, and I was staying at one resort and the conference was at a different resort. So I had to take like a taxi back and forth. And I was talking to the taxi about fishing. And I said, you know, what's it like this time of year? It's in June. This is pretty much this time of future back. And so we're going back and forth. And I said, I love freshwater fishing. I said, but I really love fishing in the ocean. Yeah. And the driver said to me, the ocean. That's got salt water in it, right? <laughs> Serious as it could be. And I was like, I kind of almost laughed at him. And then I realized, wait, wait, wait. From his perspective, the ocean is so far away, so far removed, that what's in the ocean is not relevant to his life. Mm -hmm. That is a different worldview than you will come across in the U.S. Now, you're not going to have everyone's I'm a marine biologist, but this that perspective of not even really thinking about the ocean being does it, it has salt water right like having to process this, um, and I'm not again it's not a negative judgment it's just it's just different it's like it was like jarring like whoa how could you well, it's not relevant to him <laughs> and that was mm -hmm. and, and the second thing was um, at the at the resort outside the resort um, on the front gate was uh, a national park so you couldn't go out at night because the animals were out there and the back was. The river, so they get the crocodiles and hippos and stuff you had to watch out for. So um, they kind of like just staying close by at night. And they, they had these guards posted outside the doors, like every seven or eight doors. And I remember walking up to one of the guys. I said, okay, hey, so what are y'all doing? What's going on here? And he said, we're protecting you from the people who want to destroy you. And I said, okay, I'm going, I'm going to my room now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's those type of stories that you get and, and, and that, that it just changes – your perspective and again like i can't imagine growing up but talking to people and hearing how the, the someone who wants to destroy you like that's a strong word and that's what he said destroy it's a hurt it's a kill destroy it's like oh okay mm -hmm. <laughs> i'm coming in for the night and so I, I think 
Americans sometimes struggle to um, to work with other cultures because it's those it's that little nuance that they have a guy who doesn't think about the ocean being a salt water a body of salt water. It's just not relevant to him. Yeah. Like, that's a different that's a different mentality, a different worldview. It's a completely different worldview. And, and one of the recommendations that, you know, I, I put forth in the book is that we should have rotations for Americans, right? To, to rotate to different countries across the world. And I know there's programs for that and stuff like that, but maybe you make it mandatory for people to go out and maybe that'll change people's perspective on um, what, what they have, what's important, what their priorities are, uh, what they want to do in life, what they create, what they innovate, all of these things impact and I, I, I think it helps, um, you know, point the priorities on where we should spend our time and our energy, because we, we have a tendency here to to spend our time on things that maybe aren't relevant. Um, well, <laughs> you have that, but you also have um, when I was going back to South Africa, the first time I was there, um, I went to ESCOM, which is the big power company, and I was looking at some of their GIS technology and it was more advanced than anything. I'm not saying that. Is more advanced than anything in the U.S., but anything I had seen in the U.S. in the sector that I worked in, and they had some technology, that, and they turned out they'd paid Esri to you know build the script for them and all this stuff, and it was like, wow, man, Esri should box this up and sell it in the U.S. because this is fantastic. Like I can't believe you guys have this down here, and in the U.S. we'd pay you know you know, th- you know tens of thousands of dollars for this kind of software. It's, it's crazy, yeah. right? Um, and, and, and so when you think about going to work in that country, you would think that you're going to take that program down there to them to help them out. Right. <laughs> and they got the better than you got. And you told a story in the book that was kind of a larger scale than that about yeah. uh, you went in, I think it was a banking software or something. Yeah. And you guys roll up in there and they're like, yeah, sorry, buddy. <laughs> yeah. We do more transactions. The story was, you know, they do more transactions in one province than the whole United States does. Right. And, and, we just didn't have technology and a system to do that and to wrap your head around the how large that is and, and how big that is, is is so important um, for, for people to understand. But it also it shifts your opportunity focus and it shifts you into um, I want to start something. I want to create something. And that's that's why I left Dell and I got into the entrepreneurial world, because I wanted to go create something. And, and you know, you, you have that mindset in 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 your mind and, and you want to take it somewhere. Yeah. Yes. I, I, yep. What was it like from your perspective working for Dale? And I, I would imagine if you work for Dale back in the day, Dale was a big company, a lot of prestige. You're the big dog in China for Dale and you go in there and they're like, sorry, bud. Like, yeah. I mean, did, did it take some adjustment to the pride? I guess you might say to, to deal with that because I can imagine just, thinking Dell has a lot of solutions and they did. Yeah. You go through phases as a, a personally and professionally. Right. And so these phases are, are kind of, you, you come in and you have this big ego and you think, you know, everything and it, it keeps going up and you know, more and more and more, you think, you know, and then you get it put into situations where you really don't know. And right. it, it, you know, you lose, lose face of some kind and then that starts to go down and you start to gain knowledge of the country, the culture, how it works, your mind shifts, the perspective changes. Mm-hmm. And then you realize you don't know, you don't know anything. Right. And, and you have to actually start from ground zero to build your knowledge up. And that's why, you know, at, at the beginning when I was talking about an expert, well, hell, the longer you're around, you realize that, oh, shit, I, I don't know anything here. Yeah, right? I don't know anything. Yeah, no, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. 
Yes, uh, agreed, agreed. And it's it's funny because um, when like you watch a you know like a geopolitical expert um, talk about some stuff, and we had a we had a geopolitical expert on one of my shows one time, and he come on talking about oil and gas, and you start listening to him, you're like, you don't know, like you you don't, I'm not a, I'm not an oil and gas expert by any stretch of imagination, but I knew what he was saying was wrong. You know, yeah. like, wow, you don't understand the oil and gas industry. Do you understand, you know, India or China or, or or whatever? Because you've got this all wrong. And he was talking about America's old dominance and whatever. Anyways, his point was wrong. And I just remember going, golly, yeah. this is, you know. I'll, I'll tell you one of the things that really shifted my mindset, though, is the first five years that I was there, I was considered an expat. So I was a U.S. employee mm-hmm. that was based there, paid in U.S. dollars. And halfway through my tenure, um, I, I transferred to a local contract, which means that I was a, a local hired foreign national. OK, and so many people don't realize what that is. That, that means that I'm paid in renminbi, the local currency. Right. My health care is provided locally. Um, I'm on the pension fund for local. Right. And, and so everything is localized for me. I'm no longer a U.S. employee. And when I leave China, I don't have insurance in other parts of the world and things like that. And so I was in the system then, right, as close as I could be to the system without being, you know, a a naturalized citizen of some kind. And so why that matters is because once once you're in that system, you realize how inefficient or efficient it is. Right. And, And you realize where the tax breaks are because I had to pay local tax. Right. So um, as the government shifted priorities of where they wanted people to spend their money, they gave you discounts in your taxes on where you wanted to go. And it was real time. Right. So the tax system there is monthly. Right. So if I didn't submit my receipts every month, I couldn't go back and get a discount <laughs> on that. Right. And so when I submitted taxes for the end of the year, it was a one page document, one page. That's it. Mm-hmm. And if I compare it because I'm a U.S. citizen. Right. I had to also submit that in the United States. That same equivalent information was 76 pages in the United States. And so that right there, the comparison between the two just right. led me to believe, holy crap, man, have we overcomplicated this a little bit? We can simplify this a little bit more. Well, yeah, yes. I mean, we can we can lock on the U.S. tax code if you want to go there. So, <laughs> yes, 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 sir. Uh, and, and maybe for folks who don't know, uh, to my knowledge, there is no way for you to be a naturalized citizen in China. So you, you were you as close as you could be, or is there some path that I'm not aware of? Because uh, you, 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 there isn't right. You have to renounce. You can't have dual citizenship. So right. um, you know, as a U.S. My son was born there, so he he just because he was born there doesn't mean that he's a, a citizen of China. Many people think that, right? But his birth certificate is Chinese. Right. Oh, wow. So when when we go register them for things, we have to take this Chinese thing and they, <laughs> in, in the U.S. and they think that it's fake. Right. Yeah. They, they don't. They're like, what are you talking about here, guys. But you're you're absolutely correct. You can't have dual citizenship, but there you can have a uh, ID card, a localized ID card for a foreigner. So they do uh, allow you to do that, and the government will sign off on that. And once you have an ID card, it's like a license, right? It's like a driver's license in the U.S. You can go through the local lines um, as you come into the country or as you get services and stuff like that. Yeah. And there is a ways to do it. So to your point about, you know, 
Um, one of the things I've been talking about recently is this kind of idea in the West that we look to China um, and we were, whether you think we're in a cold war or a competition or whatever term you want to put to them, I have a bit of a concern that from the U S perspective, we look at what China has done and we don't nuance out the pros and the cons. Right. And so if you look at, when you go to China now, um, if you want to get a taxi, don't take out currency, hold your phone up with your, uh, with your, um, oh gosh, what's the app, the, uh, uh, WeChat or, or whatever, yeah. this guy, you know, show that you've got the, the scanner saying scan it because yeah. they're not going to take the currency. Um, and on, on a lot of ways, that's really efficient because you don't have to have hard currency or a credit card. It's just on your phone. Also, there's drawbacks to that uh, because now the government, if they want to crack down on people, which they do in China, they have a way. They just write there on your phone. How do you balance out trying to explain um, your perception of the good in China, which they've done a lot of good. They've taken, depending on who you believe, four to 800 million people out of poverty over the last 40 years. Um, they do a lot of bad too. So how do you advise people in the West on how to view things they see in China? Yeah, that's that's a that's a wonderful question, and it's ongoing. I believe I don't, I don't know if there's one right answer to it, but um, there's a lot of positive. There's a ton of positive that has happened, and there's a ton of benefit that that everybody can gain from from what has been done over the last 20, 30 years. And I think both countries have helped each other out in certain ways, right? I can recall, um, you know, being there during that boom, those boom years. Um, and, and being a part of Dell on what we were doing, we were helping establish the infrastructure of the future technology companies that are there today. So you look at the Tencents, the Alibabas, the Neties, the all of these were, were, were established and helped through the hardware that was there or a custom build hardware that we helped create, right? Um, and, and so, um, how do you compare between between the the good and the bad? Yeah, you, you have to know as a company what you're getting into, and the only way to know that is to understand the history, understand uh, corporations or companies that have done business there, why they're doing business, and why they want to go there. And so you you've got to truly understand what you're getting into before you jump into the into the boat, um, and and know that there there's corruption, right? There's ethics issues. There's all sorts of stuff that aren't equivalent to what Americans are used to, or maybe even what the developed world is used to. But, you know, in, in, in some people's eyes, what's the definition of corruption, right? Um, for, for us, right, and, and maybe a good comparison is lobbyists in, in the United States, right? We, we call that legal, right? Well, in China, they have lobbyists, right? You, you pay somebody to have access and to have influence, right? What's the difference between that and what we do in the US? We've created laws and rules and regulations around all of that stuff. But if you compare them identical and you don't put tags on them or you don't put the country <laughs> on right. the top of it, it could look very similar, right? Right. It's just different. Now, there are difference in liberty freedoms, sure. free speech, all of these things. And, you know, those are choices that people have to make, uh, whether you're doing business or whether you're personal um, and, and where you stand. And, and you need to draw the line of what you get involved in and what you don't get involved in. Yeah. And, you know, on the business side of things, you know, one of the things that that it seems to me, and I'm curious your perspective, is that, um the people who went to China, the early adopters of China, to use that term, 
you know, they went in and, and I guess I'm talking like Volkswagen, something you know, way back when, you know, mm-hmm. they went in and I think that they believed that they had, they were about to get a huge advantage. They're going to China, they're getting cheap labor, and there's no way these Chinese will ever come and catch up with us. Sure. And so they allowed a lot of things to happen that they could have nipped in the bud years ago. Sure. They didn't. And so now a lot of the complaints about business in China as as a result of companies who are making money hand over fist. Uh, You saw this, I think, in Germany last year. The Germans were complaining that the Chinese were stealing IP or or whatever it was. And, you know, Germany is kind of in a tough spot because they need to import from China. But I I was looking at some of the companies and and their complaints were more or less that now the Chinese are competing with us outside of China. And I thought, well, how did how are they doing that? Like, let's just stop thinking about that. If you're saying that you're in China and now the company that's in China that you were partnering with is completely outside China. They didn't just wake up one day and, and go, Oh, Hey, guess what? We have all your stuff and we're leaving you. This was a slow process that you allowed to happen. I'm not trying to take a moral stance on who's right and wrong. I'm more saying that it feels like the West allowed a lot of stuff to happen. And now they're kind of complaining that they didn't handle it the right way because China sure. has caught up with them under the rules that everyone agreed to play by. Yeah, sure. So money clouds a lot of things and it makes people do things that maybe they shouldn't do. Right. And and companies are included in that. And when you have a lot of these companies, multinationals that are listed on exchanges or they have a lot of investors, you know, those drive a lot of of what people do and the lure of the money and the attraction of the big markets and the big volumes certainly can cloud decision making on uh, what you do and what you don't do. And, and, and I saw firsthand that happen every single time. I can't tell you how many times that I've heard um, China say they're going to open their financial system, right? I, it's been 20 years, right? And they continue to say the same thing, but yet they won't allow foreign uh, financial firms to come in and own more than a certain percentage. Right. The same for the automobile, right? The same for various industries that they have. And so they, they keep saying that and keep giving the carrots out there. Money clouds a lot of stuff and it clouded a lot of decisions that were made. And I think everybody, you're absolutely right, thought that it would turn, right? And it would, um, and it would be played out properly and that there would be some rule of law <laughs> around or some sort of penalties, but you know, it is what it is. It's competition. And I think people have caught on to it now, or at least there's more of an awareness of it. And so let's see what happens uh, off of that awareness. Some businesses may choose to um, get out of China. They may choose to uh, change how they do business. They may choose to uh, develop products that are localized versus Mm -hmm. the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'll give you a story. I'll give you a great story because I worked with uh, a lot of these companies, Huawei in particular. Um, it was one of uh, my largest customers um, in, in China at the time. Right. And and we helped to build a customized product that had DC power on it for emerging markets. So you could argue, right? And other companies did the same thing. HPE, uh, IBM, all of these companies developed unique products that helped Huawei get into emerging markets across the world because, you know, the developed world had a tough time getting into emerging markets for price competition, labor competition, all of these things, right? But China knew this quite well. 
and they knew how to do this, right? So it, by partnering with them and creating all of that stuff, it was it was beneficial to both sides. We got heavy volume on it, and they got into markets that uh, they couldn't. So at the time, right, those were good, sound business decisions. And if you're in the sales side of the house, you're not thinking of right. <laughs> next year, right? You're thinking, right. how are you going to make your number yes, that's right. this year? And that's what drove a lot of the decisions that you have. And, you know, you had companies like Siemens. Siemens had 76, 78 joint ventures all across China. They were developing products for all over the world. They were developing for, for localization. And so um, these companies, I think, are aware. They're certainly aware of it. I think they're trying to change how they do things. But the volumes are so high in these countries that in China that it's hard to turn your back to it. It is extremely hard. So what do you do? I don't know what the right answer is for some of these companies. Oh, and that's the quadrant, right? Well, yes. So you have the, how do they solve it, which is part of it. I, I think for me, the, um, what I hear maybe, I don't know if whining is the right term, the complaining or kind of how, how the posturing is at the level. I'm like, okay, I'm just not going to give you guys the free pass uh, because of what you did in the past. Because if you thought it was the right decision at the time, good for you. I'm not mad at you. Um, if you thought it was the right decision, but you also kind of not, not at your level, maybe with the CEO level. Well, listen, we can do this and our competitors, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily mad at what they did. I'm, yeah. I'm more frustrated that, Hey, before we start, getting out here and talking about this stuff, you know, um, what's the plausible deniability, you know, like for some of the weaker stuff, like, ah, eh, you know, so I, I just, I got, I got, I got a little bit of a leery eye, I guess is, is my thing with, with some of that. And that's not to say these companies shouldn't be in China. I'm a free market guy. So I, mm -hmm. if you want to go to China and work, listen, I've said before, I'll say, you know, you might not like this, but I'm for working with North Korea, Iran, wherever, if you want, I'm a free market guy. So I don't, I don't, I don't believe in sanctions or any of that stuff. I think all that's just um, usually targets, and it hurts the people who can't do anything about it. So um, just so we're clear, I'm not against people working with China. And, and I think that that's it. To your point, though, you see with Hollywood right now, they're really struggling because the Chinese market is so robust. And they yeah. kind of have tried to tailor um, tailor their product to work for U.S. and China. And my thought is, is that they're going to have to either, A, make movies that are for the Chinese market and then movies for the U.S. market, or, or B, they're going to end up, probably just having to lower their budget so much because it just won't work. And why I don't understand what would be the problem with Hollywood saying, listen, China's a huge market. We're going to make movies just for them. Just like you make a rom-com. A rom-com is not for me. Make yeah. a movie for China. What do I care? Yeah. I, 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 I think um, a lot of this has to do with awareness on, on uh, what's going on beneath the surface and what's going on behind the scenes and um, this blind trust that things will work out um, ha has to go away. And so the you know the the movie theater and, and Hollywood and stuff, right? They're in, they're in a bad situation, right? Um, but they could stand up, just like the sports teams could stand up. Sure. And they they certainly don't need to bend to a foreign government. That is kind of ridiculous to me. Um, they need to stand up. And yeah, they're going to lose money, sure. But it'll get picked up somewhere else over time. And it's that short-term versus long-term view of the world and where things go because things will balance out, um, even though the volume is there. And you're right. You can make localized offerings and localized solutions 
to cater towards those markets, but it's hard to do. And some people, some, sometimes people don't want to do the hard thing. They want to do the easy thing. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> I hear what you're saying about the movie. I, I don't know. I'm torn and here, and here's why. Um, I, I don't, first off, uh, most U S consumers don't realize that movies are censored in a lot of countries all over the world, not just China. So we're censoring movies in you know, Saudi Arabia or India or wherever. So it's not uncommon for Hollywood to adapt a movie somewhat for a localized, um, localized thing with the China, it's kind of more of an extreme because you can't mention Taiwan or you, you, you can't you know, even take it. I think the top gun movie that took off a flag off the jacket. So it, it's kind of on steroids. Um, and so, I, we already do it. So I hate to single out and say, well, you have to stand up to China because I don't know if they should have to stand up to everyone. And at the same token, Marriott or whoever, they won't list Taiwan as a destination on their website, even though they have hotels there. So it'd kill their business. It'd kill the stock, right? right. So they're, they're already so invested in this thing that you, 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 you're, you're stuck, right? So if, if right. I'm a CEO of that company, yeah, I'm in a tight spot, man. And that right. is a tough decision to make, you know, right. and you've got to have backing behind you and you've got to be articulate of what your plans are in order to be successful in that. And, you know, they got into these situations because they had blind trust um, yeah. and they thought that things w would work out. Um, and, Sometimes. Oh yeah, I'm, I don't feel bad for them. I just, I just don't want to say I don't want to pound on Hollywood too hard and then not be pounding on the hotel chains or the flights or, or whatever. And uh, anyway, it, it's it's as you said, the more you get the China stuff, the more it's like, oh yeah, you got to connect this dot and this dot. I, yeah. you bring up something I want to circle back to though. You talk about sure. owning and JVs in China. Let's talk about that a little bit because Tesla, yeah. to my knowledge, is the only company, car company that has that has a wholly owned plant in China. They're the only ones, right? Yeah, they uh, remember they threw in billions of dollars in investment um, to get a piece of the company, right? And so there was a deal that Elon struck with them uh, that is coming back to bite them right now, right? So they have exceeded, I, I don't know what it is, 22, 25% of global revenue comes from China now. They, they have the plant uh, that's there. They just announced what a couple of days ago that there were 300,000 yeah. cars for recall. It's all uh, the cars to be clear. Yeah, it's, 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 every, it's, it's every car. Now don't, this is all done. This, this was all planned, right? Sure. Right. So whether people think it's planned or not, it is planned. Right. Um, and just like uh, a foreign company coming into the United States, the same thing would probably happen. Right. Whoa, 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 whoa. you guys are getting too, too ahead of yourself. Let us control this. This is our country. This is our land. Let us deal with that kind of stuff. Now, Tesla got a deal. They got a deal because he's got a hot technology, right? And right. they need to supercharge their EV, right? And they want to, um, and Elon put it in there because there's energy sources that are there. All the, all the, all the raw materials are there, right? So it, it makes it, makes it a little bit easier, right? Right. So, don't, don't forget there's transfer going on. There has yeah. to be transfer going on. Right. And so the, it started at least, um, the most recent stuff about a month or two ago when they said, Hey, you're using your technology to spy on our, our military officials and government officials and stuff. And it was interesting because whether that's being, whether that's true or not, as the American side of things, I wonder how many Americans stopped and go, wait, 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 w
Yeah. <laughs> I thought sometimes the communist regimes, like the, the things that they will say, it's like, wait, that's a, that's a really that's good That's true. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, but, but you notice the cycle, right? And so it's a typical pattern that happens, right? And it's not just Tesla. It's, it's many companies mm-hmm. that come out. You'll throw out some bad news, right? right? Or you'll throw out a question. You'll throw out a question. We do it in the U.S. for certain oh, yeah. things, right? And so th- then it leads to PR campaigns and brand campaigns and all of these type of stuff. Well, the same is true there, right? They threw this story out you know, months ago. Early on, when they were there for Tesla, I, th- I think they showed films of cars burning up and stuff. Oh, yeah, like they that. had stuff in the fire in the garage or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, whether it was real or not, who knows, right? right? Um, but it's that kind of stuff that gets thrown out because you're getting a little too big for your britches here, and and we want to know, we want you to know who's in control here. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it happens everywhere. It happens all over the world, man. In in any country, Japan, Austria, you name it, man. It happens happens all over the place. Oh well, I mean, yeah, we can put the tinfoil hats on if you're ready to go down that that, that avenue. I've got some thoughts there too. Uh- yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it did happen with. And, and an interesting story right now is Didi, right? So mm-hmm. Didi mm-hmm. is the competitor to uh, to, to um, Uber here, mm-hmm. um, and and Didi goes IPO today, right? I don't I don't know what time they they start listing, but uh, you know they were they were supposed to go. So they're trying to raise what four billion dollars here. They're already subscribed here in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. It probably goes on at noon or something. That they're going to start listing at 14 bucks a share but that's interesting too because the same type of thing went on when uber was trying to compete with dd locally and so i was there at the time that they were competing right and i think the volumes that they were spending on an annual basis were in the billions of dollars mm-hmm. to incent people to get onto their platform and they decided to say, hey, time out here. We're going to we're going to not do this. And so there were you imagine the stories that were thrown out with Uber, the stories right. that were thrown out with Didi and the two sides. Right. And the battle. And finally, Uber said, we're, we're out of here. Right. And right. Didi say, I'll give you some of our shares. And so in this IPO that's coming out, Uber is going to make a fortune on this stuff. <laughs> right. They're going to make a fortune. But then the question mark becomes, you know, is Didi um, ready for the world stage? Are they a part of the the Belt and Road Initiative? Are they a part of all of these emerging markets? Um, are they already integrated in there? Um, do they spy? Are they tracking? Where's that data? I mean, you could go on and on and on uh, right. about all of these things. What is your just? We'll, we'll we'll separate Didi for a second, but just generally speaking, what is your thoughts on? Uh, Chinese companies being able to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange and U.S. companies, U.S. people, uh, U.S. investors being able to invest in them because they do have, you know, government ties and stuff like that. And it's not just Chinese, but it's from China. Yeah. And so li- these are my personal views. Right. And and I invest in these companies. Right. So don't get me wrong. I buy I buy stock in these because I know about these companies. But you could question you know, a lot of them are, are ADRs, right? A lot of them don't require the same things that are required by U.S. companies in terms of financials or regulations. Right. And that's the question mark, right? Right. And then the other question mark is if, if you and U.S. investors or people are putting their money in, is there a way for them to per, be protected in some way if something happens with that company? And so 
you know, Alibaba's listed, you, you, you get all of these hundreds of Chinese companies that are on there. Do they actually have the protection as an investor in the US if they put their money in there, if something happens to right. that company? Do we have the legality to go in and investigate these companies wow. if there's wrongdoing, just like we would have the same thing for US companies or European companies or whoever that are listed there? I don't think that we do, right? A lot of these companies that are listed, they're not required to have that and you have limited protection and it goes back to awareness. I think a lot of investors are unaware of the um, uh, protectiveness that they have within these investments and then the risk that's involved in them. And you see the stories come out all the time right. of fraudulent uh, financials, right? Mm -hmm. And I know firsthand that there's two sets of books. There's what you see and then there's the local ones, right? And the auditing that goes on. There's no company, like a coffee company that had like no coffee or something that was. Yeah. Lucky, lucky, uh, luck in, luck in. Yeah. yeah. That, that was the name of it. Yeah. They had two sets of books, right? So, uh, I mean, you know, right. be careful what you're jumping into. I, I think it's okay if the firms have some way of regulating it. And I don't know if that's in place today. And it goes back to the lure of the money, right? right. Flow the money. People get excited about strong gains um, and, and the ability to, to make more. Now, the flip side of this is you could say, we're funding us investors are funding mm -hmm. these companies to be successful in other parts of the world right. is that something that we want to go do as individuals or as a country and is that something that we should be doing so yeah i would say the way that everything is set up currently um not in my perfect world is that companies should be listed um <clears throat> in the country that they reside in. Hmm. But you should be able to invest with much more ease in those stock exchanges than you can now, right? Because it's not easy necessarily for U.S. investors to invest outside of the U.S. Right. Uh, because then you, so then you would, you know, if you're on there, well, you know it's a Chinese company because you're in China or a Japanese company because it's Japan or whatever. I think that would be the, the first step because then the risk is kind of baked into it. You understand it's a different thing. Whereas right now you get on, you know, TD Ameritrade or whatever, you might not do your research, go, Oh, well, Bob said this is a good stock. I go buy it. And you don't understand that that, that risk is there. So that would be the first step. The second thing is the more cross and I'm big cross border investment, because the more cross border investment that happens, yeah. I think the potential, the, the potential for war, um, goes away, right? So if we're all investing or in- it starts a war. <laughs> okay, I'm talking about on the consumer level, not on the, not on the big guy level, on the consumer level. And the, the analogy I always give is, if US pension funds yeah. invested in Syria, in some refinery in Syria, mm. the next time we dropped a bomb there, they'd be calling up the congressman and saying, listen, <laughs> listen, mm. you're going to cost us a bunch of money. Why are we bombing? Who are we bombing again? Explain this to me. And, and so the, because the, going back to the money thing. So the money, I'm not saying it's the best way to develop international relationships, but it does start a process because if you have financial ties to a country, you want the best for that country. Um, and so I don't know if that's the best way to do it, but uh, under the current setup, it seems that that would make the most sense because then you could understand where the company's based from and you know, you'd be more willing or more aware of the potential risk at least, or have the, have the ability to understand that, that there's risk. 
Sure. And and you made a point there. You made a point uh, around, you know, the, the currency and the ability to um, have money transfer all over the place. And that goes that, that that is the core of a lot of the problems that are going on, especially with China. Right. Mm -hmm. Ch the Chinese renminbi is not fully convertible. Right. right. So. It, we, you you cannot go online and convert and you can transfer money to renminbi uh -huh. but you can't you can't convert it backwards right okay so that flow of money is the is the problem and i know this because I, I i have a bank account in china right i i have a bank account and i can't get it and i always know when the relations are bad with china <laughs> because my atm doesn't work <laughs> So they shut it off, right? There's limits on what you can do um, mm -hmm. to get that money out, right? You can convert it as a foreigner. You can convert certain amounts. And if you have the right tax records, you can mm -hmm. do all of that. But you have to do it in person. And, you know, it, it's very cumbersome and it's and it's hard to do. But that flow of money is a big thing, right? And a big trapping. And that goes back to the U.S. dollar being... Um, king, king of the castle, right Ac across the world, and and that's why you see these digital currencies and and digital yuan and crypto and, mm -hmm. and the the fight that goes on amongst all of that and and what that's going to look like. And I I don't know what it's going to look like. I'm not a financial analyst by any means or, or right. an economist at all. But I mean, it, you change the rules, you rule the world, right? That's right. That's right. No, it's yeah. funny because I, I I want to work on a I want to write a book, a short book on the, the digital yuan, crypto, and the dollar, and the battle is coming. Because make no mistake about it, there is a battle coming. I'm not saying necessarily with guns, but there's a battle coming because China understands this. Um, mm -hmm. The U.S. definitely understands this. The U.S.'s allies understand this. This is not just a the U.S. is at the top of the heap. And if you look at the Bitcoin stuff. Going back to your point about you see these things kind of roll out. Well, a few months ago, India comes out and like, well, you know, we might ban Bitcoin. We're not really sure about that. Yeah. At the same time, their prime minister, secretary of finance, I can't remember who it was, was talking to Janet Yellen. Yeah. And she's not a Bitcoin person at all for obvious reasons. Yeah, it's yeah. like, huh, they just had a call and then this announcement comes out. Now, I don't know if India is going to do anything or not, um, but then you see that coin it was a Coinbase and you know, Binance is banned in the UK. So you see these things with mm -hmm. countries that are friendly to the US and its status as a reserve currency. On the other hand, you see Iran like, yeah, we'll do a 25 year deal with China. <laughs> you know, we'll, yeah. we'll do it. We're being sanctioned to death, but we're going to do it. And so that's subverting the dollar. And that's a that's a big sure. deal. That's a huge deal, right? And so these have been going on for quite a while, right? There's, there's been relationships that have been set up already between Russia and China and then Russia and, and, and Iran and, and various other groups. And those transactions are happening without conversion into U.S. dollar. And that's part of the battle with, with Hong Kong, too, right? I mean, Hong Kong, there's speech and that kind of stuff. But money flew, all money flew through Hong Kong, mm -hmm. right? All oh, yeah. U.S. dollar and all transactions and all convertible. And now you're seeing all of that shift to Singapore and and various other parts. And so that disruption um, is feeling the effects everywhere. What that does to trade and what that does to relationships and business and supply chains. I mean, it, it has ripple effects everywhere. OK, let's let's get a few minutes left here. Let's talk about just relationships on the international space. Um, yeah. Before I went international, um, someone told me relationships are 10 times as valuable 
internationally as they're in the U.S. And in mm-hmm. fact, if you've got a good relationship, the contract is really not, it's important, but not as important as the relationship. Do you agree with that statement? I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it depends on the country that you're dealing with, right? So I think there's a difference between emerging countries and developed countries. I think there are developed countries that have uh, more legal system involved right. and more process. And emerging that, countries, it was well referred to, yes. Yeah. yes. yeah, so emerging countries, absolutely. Uh, relationships are critical to start businesses um, and and to start contracts. And having those relationships is key to getting stuff done. It gives you access, right? It, mm-hmm. it, it gives you credibility. Mm-hmm. It gives you potentially funding and money, mm-hmm. right? And, and you need all of that stuff if you're a foreigner trying to do business in a foreign land, just like somebody would need access if they came to the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. They would need somebody to tell them how to do it. So I'm curious, from my perspective, the thing that, that I found to be the most effective with my international dealings has been the willingness to go, the willingness to show up and just go to a foreign country and yeah. have dinner, go around. It's amazing how much that has separated me from people who have, I don't have a college degree. So college degrees, MBAs, yeah. Harvard graduate, connected, just won't go. But sure. you know, it, 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 has that been your, your experience as well? Absolutely. I just showing up is is 80 percent of the um, I I can't tell you how much opportunity that has presented itself just by uh, being there and and being a part of it. Um, I'm not an academic, man. I'm a C student. Right. I I, I have a psychology degree. Right. I don't I don't I have no business degree. I have none of it. I picked psychology because it was the easiest one. Right. And, and so um, just showing up and being a part of um, uh, traveling, understanding, um, being a part of culture, eating, eating. With them, speaking, understanding the mannerisms, the symbolism, all of those things are extremely important if you want to do business. And I think the other thing um, that's important is having patience, right? Um, Americans have a tendency not to have a lot of patience in some way. Um, and maybe it's a generational thing. I don't, I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't have patience for some things, but others that I do. But I, I learned the biggest thing that I learned living overseas and doing business overseas is patience. Um, patience, because the clock, one of the things, at least with some of my African friends, is they've said, well, we want the Americans to come down because y'all work at a faster pace than we do. And we like the way that you kind of keep the schedule and this kind of American drive and stuff like that. But then in dealing with them on stuff, they're, they're still kind of slow. It's like, well, OK, yeah. <laughs> I, I want to speed this up here, guys. They're like, no, no, no. It, it, it's just a cultural thing where it's this that their clock works differently than, than my clock does. And it's, to your point at the beginning, it's not a right or wrong thing. It's a different thing. Mm-hmm. And to work in those countries and to work with those people, they're not bad people. They have no ill will. It's just, that's just how they go through life. And it's just at a different pace. And on some days I'm more, I'm very much more envious of them than <laughs> because it's like, ah, that'd be nice to, to slow play this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, you know, a lot of times, especially meetings in China and, and across Asia for that matter, um, it wasn't about the meeting. The meeting was symbolic in, in nature. And right think that that concept in itself is foreign to Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, Americans go to meetings to get stuff done. That's right. And, and you know, in some of these other countries, um, China included, you're going to the meeting not to get something done because it's already done. 
right? Yeah. The contract's right. already done. It's right. a, you don't need to worry about that. You're showing up to to snap a picture or save some face or mm -hmm. you know uh, just smile. And that concept is hard for people. And I can't tell you how often I had executives fly in that you know they they didn't understand that at all, and it was a tough concept for them to get. Yeah, another thing. I have one more thing, and then we'll let we'll let you wrap it up with this. Um, asking questions. What I've learned is is that if you go down there, like, well, let me tell you, you know, what you guys need to do that doesn't get you very far. No. But if you go, what's going on here? Or help me understand this. Or why, why is this the way it is? Or um, you know, or whatever the question is, they really, you know, in America, it's, it's it, explaining stuff is almost kind of a, a faux pas. But but going to a foreign country and asking about the country. You're showing yeah. that you care and doing a little bit of research before you show up goes a long way too. So you're not completely oblivious, you know, but, mm -hmm. um, but you know, it's, 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 it's stunning that just asking questions because you're showing that you care and you should care if you're trying to work in that country, right? Like you should care. And Oh, by the way, as you said multiple times, you're not an expert, you won't be an expert. So you need to ask the questions. And um, I, I found that it's, it's really weird because you start asking the questions um, and the things that you get sometimes aren't exactly what you're asking for, but they illuminate the way they answer the question or the way they describe something to you or the way they bring in something that you're like, I don't even, well, hold on. I don't understand. You, I asked you about this and you said this, and then how's this tied in? And they tell you that and like, Oh, and so yeah. if you didn't ask, you never would have, you never would have known. Yeah. And you're absolutely correct. And, and, and asking the right questions in the right way, um, you, you have to, understand that depending on the country that you're in because the response that you get or how you ask that um, right. can be offensive or not be offensive and so you need to be careful or aware of, of those types of things and it's funny 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 story i would come back to the u.s after being away for so long i would have simplified english when i came back so <laughs> I, I would have basic terminology you eat here, right? I, I, it would be that, you know, I would sound like that because you you would just have to simplify things a little bit different because you got to remember, you know, English isn't the first language for, for most people uh, across Asia. And so understanding that, understanding the history and the culture. And I, I tell you what, Ryan, I mean, I, I didn't, I, I learned more history after I left China because I was more eager to learn and understand what had just happened. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I dove into it a, a little bit further. I wish that I would have started that way mm -hmm. where I read history and I understood that history and I understood all that stuff at first before I went. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if I would have gotten it. Right. Right. Um, right. You, you don't get it until after the fact sometimes. It's interesting because when we were over there in uh, November of 19, um, one of our uh, translators and he, I hate, I hate calling translator because they were both more than translators, but they, but they were also functioning as translators. They were, it was, um, and he, we would ask questions, you know, just right around the bus going from place to place. And he would always say, well, you know, in the Ming dynasty, so-and-so and so-and-so, and then in this dynasty, so-and-so and so-and-so. And, and so the joke became when, you know, they would say something. They say we'd say, "Well, in the second Ming Dynasty, because you know we didn't do all the dynasties, so we, we just yeah, yeah. Second Ming Dynasty." But it was just funny, just because like how they viewed history, which was by the you know these dynasties. And it, it, again, going back to kind of the, the comment about the guy with the, the salt water, that's just a different way to think about time. Sure. I, wait, you're categorizing this as a dynasty. You know, we we might say 
the Obama years, the Trump years, but we we probably say, you know, the the 90s or the 80s or the 70s, right? And it, it, that's that's different because in the 70s, a lot of stuff happened. But you're saying here's a dynasty and yep. I'm categorizing things like that. And so I found that to be quite interesting, uh, fascinating. And since I've been back trying to read about the dynasties and understanding, it, it's been it's been enlightening to understand that, that at least some of them think that way. That's helpful. Yeah. One of the things that opened my mind on just the length of time was the the written language, the characters, right? So the, the characters have been around for 5,000 years. Um, and and that right. is traditional characters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,300 different dialects all across um, uh, China, right? So you mm-hmm. can imagine the different things that have gone on. But those characters have stayed the same across that whole length of time of 5,000 years. They have simplified Chinese and they have different dialects, but the characters have always stayed the same. So the characters never change. They just tell different stories as the time goes on. Right. And so it's it, it's an interesting thing. And you're like, holy shit, that's, that's a long time. They've been around right. for a long time, you know? Right. Okay. So let's wrap it up with this. First, um, I think me and you both agree. I don't know if you agree about North Korea and Iran, but <laughs> we both agree that working internationally, working people internationally, is one of the greatest experiences that you can do. But the best things you can do, it's fantastic. Um, for someone who says, you know, okay, you know, my company's domestic. They're not. They have no plans to go international. Is sales the best avenue to go international from your perspective? Is it um, maybe some kind of IT engineering? What are your thoughts on that? Um, just you know, at a high level, obviously you can't answer questions for everyone, but just thinking through, what's the easiest way to go international? Yeah, um, I, 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 I don't know the easiest way. Um, I would say sales is more transfer, transferable to many different markets and many right. different industries. So it's, it's probably easier to do okay. some sort of sales, but, but it, it also will make it harder to sell locally. Right. Um, right? So some sort of functionality. But what I, I, I guess I'll leave you, you with this is that you, in tomorrow's world, right? Mm-hmm you're going to have to have a global mindset on solutions and cultures and how that interacts, right? Because it all interacts together. And if you're creating solutions and you're creating and solving problems, you want to create it for multiple cultures. You don't want to create it for just one. And so having that different perspective and being able to be integrated into a different culture, that's the only way you're going to be able to create something new and invent something new. And that's what the future is all about. And so I'm excited about my children, right? And my kids and their ability to impact what the rest of the world is because they have a green sheet, right? And a blue ocean that's out there and their ability to, to connect with uh, the rest of the world. So if you get an opportunity, uh, take it. If you don't have an opportunity, go create an opportunity. <laughs> yeah, go, go make one, right? Because um, what doesn't work here um, can work in other spots and other parts of the world. And what you'll find is that there is a solution to whatever you're solving in some part of the world today, because there's over 8 billion plus people across the world. And so it's, it's big and go make it happen. That's what I would say. Yeah, and consider maybe if you have an advanced degree like a master's or something, maybe an NGO or something like that, I think Tank may, might be an option for you. Um, you get some kind of foot in the door. Um, what you find is the international community is big, broad, diverse, but it's also tightly knit at some points. So like you, <laughs> you come across yeah. people like, oh, wait, hold on. So, um, okay, 
where can people find you at LinkedIn website? Where do we connect? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm hi- I'm highly active on LinkedIn. Um, uh, so they can find me uh, un- under Tyler Johnson there. Uh, the way of the Laowai. Uh, the book is available across all platforms. So Amazon, Google, um, and uh, if they want to reach out, they can message me on LinkedIn, no problem. Um, or they can email me at Tyler at the way of the Okay. We will link to the book, of course, and your LinkedIn for folks who want to do it. I want to connect. Uh, Tyler, thank you so much for coming on today. Man, thanks for having me. This has been great, man. We can talk all day on this, on some of this stuff. <laughs> uh, I agree. And for the listeners, thank you for tuning in. And we'll be back. Uh, I think we've got a show tomorrow. So I'll be back tomorrow.